Titus chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, the sermon title this morning is Slaves and Masters. I figured I'd try to come up with the most popular sermon title I could come up with or think about, and I figured Slaves and Masters would be pretty counterintuitive. But that is what we're talking about today. But first, today is Reformation Day, 500 years ago, 504 years ago to be specific. Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Castle Church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and what God had begun to stir in the heart of Martin Luther was not to start something new, but was to reform something that's been very, very old that had been corrupted. The Reformation in short, which is Reformation Day today, the Reformation in short was about two big things. Now, there are many subcategories, but it was primarily about two big things. And those two big things still divide Catholics and Protestants today. We've not made progress, and we're not going to make progress until these two big hurdles are tackled and we can find biblical unity on them. And these two big things are authority and the gospel. Authority and the gospel. If you want to understand the slide of the Catholic Church pre-Reformation, if you want to understand what the heart of the Reformation was all about, you just need to understand two things, and you're a historian. You need to understand authority and the gospel of Jesus. Now, number one, authority. Here's the big question and the big divide that still remains. Does the church regulate the Word of God, or does the Word of God regulate the church? It's an issue of authority. Where does authority in the church come from? Does the church have authority over the Word of God to shape the Word of God and dictate the Word of God? To change the Word of God, to add to the Word of God, or take away from the Word of God? Does the church have that final authority, or... Is the church regulated by the Word of God? Martin Luther, when he was on trial for this, was bringing biblical text to bear upon the actions of the Catholic Church. And as they were scrambling to find answers, they brought these accusations against him and he stood on trial. And here's what Luther said back. Since your most serene majesty and your lordship require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one, and it is this. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures and by clear reason, for I do not trust in the Pope or his counsels alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures that I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right for me to go against conscience. Here I stand." And I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. The question was, what does the Bible say? And does the Bible say only what the church says it says to be able to defend its actions? Or should the church, in all her under-authorities, bow their knee to the Word of God and say, Thus saith the Lord. What does He say? And only what God says goes. We do not get to dictate it. We do not get to change it. We do not get to mess with it. The Word of God says what it says, and we will submit. And so Luther and the Protestants were absolutely right to say it's the Word of God that regulates the people of God. The people of God do not get to regulate the Word of God. Here's what Martin Luther said about the Reformation. He said this, I simply taught and preached and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the Word of God greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted so much losses upon it. I did nothing. The Word 
did everything. The Word of God was unleashed and it changed the world. At the same time, God sovereignly determined that a man named Johannes Gutenberg would invent the printing press. And the Word of God now would be available in the hands of people. And throughout the world, people were able to read in their own language the very Word of God. They were able to hear from God in a way they hadn't been able to hear from God in the past. And Martin Luther had to bank his life, and we still to this day bank our life on the Word of God. I am not able, nor any church council, able to say this is what the Word of God says and then do anything counter to what the Word of God says. We are to submit to God's Word. Here we stand. Secondly, the Gospel of Jesus. The Gospel of Jesus. Is the work of Christ enough to justify a man or a woman, or is the work of Christ not enough? That's the question that we have to have an answer to. Is the work of Christ enough to save? Is God's is God's arm powerful enough to save or not? Authority and the gospel. It's what the Reformation was all about. And the Reformers declared that Jesus indeed is powerful enough to save and He doesn't need our help one iota to do it. The solas of the Reformation do this. Sola Scriptura addresses authority. That the Scriptures are our authority that we must submit to. The church itself. The Pope who is an Antichrist who needs to be born again, who is working against the work of God, who is violating the Scriptures daily, who is pulling people away from Christ. He must repent and trust in what the Word of God says and the Word of God says alone. He is acting in, the li in, in line with demonic forces, calling people to question God's Word. So Sola Scriptura declares that we look to Scripture alone for final Word, authority, and practice. That has to do with authority. And then the rest of the solas, the, the four remaining solas, sola fide, sola, sola gratia, sola Christos, sola de gloria, have to do with God's work in salvation. It's a declaration that God can save. Faith alone. We are not saved by faith plus works of the law. We are saved by faith alone. Real faith. False faith cannot save. But real faith is God-given. And we are saved by faith in the work of Christ alone. Grace alone. We are not saved by anything within us. We are saved by grace alone. If you are a Christian, it's because God's sheer and free grace. This is what the Reformers, by God's grace, stumbled upon. The grace of God. Are you kidding? We're not saved by our free will. We're not saved by our, the works of the law. We're saved by God's mercy, by His grace and His grace alone. And it's like the Holy Spirit made all these light bulbs go off all over the world about the grace of God. And when you come face to face with the grace of God, it changes your life forever. Many of you have become Christians. And then years later, you stumbled upon the grace of God. And it was like this life-changing epiphany. Wait a minute. I'm saved by God's grace and not by the work of my hands? And everything's been different since that point. We are saved by grace alone. In Christ alone. Sola Christo. Christ alone. We don't need to supplement the work of Christ with our work. It's not as if Jesus did everything. I mean, He just got us to the finish line and it's up to us to step over the finish line. It's not as if Jesus saved us 99% and left that remaining 1% to us. The declaration of the Reformation to this day is that Jesus saves alone. Christ alone. No other saviors can be found throughout all this world. 
You can go to and fro. You can go from country to country. You can go from village to village. You can go from religion to religion. And you can find no power to save. Only Christ saves. Sola de gloria. All glory goes to God. No glory goes to man. We praise God for His grace and His mercy. By faith, we look to Him, and then for the rest of our lives, after we're born again, we devote our lives living for the glory of God. And we, by, by His help, through the power of the Holy Spirit, stop living for our vain glory. It's not a look-at-me life, it's a look-at-Him life for the rest of our life. Through the work of the Spirit, God's Word and God's Gospel continue to change the world. It's not as if God's Word and God's Gospel changed the world and then stopped changing the world. This was the ancient truth found in the Scriptures that were unearthed in the Reformation. And today, we still stand with Luther. Our conscience is captive to the Word of God. We found nothing else like it. And we cannot retract anything. It's neither safe for us nor right for us to go against conscience. Here we stand and we will do no other. God help us. Amen. Praise God for Martin Luther. Praise God for the Reformation. Now, let's talk slavery. Titus chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. We bump into this passage today, and we walk into it with Reformation principles. What does God's Word have to say? And we bump into it, and instead of being embarrassed about words like slavery that are in the Bible, or masters... Instead of running away from difficult passages, the tradition, the holy tradition of the Scriptures is to say, this is the apostolic word, we're going to go with what God has to say, and we won't back away from it. And our conscience bears witness with the truth. What what are we going to do? Be embarrassed about what God has to say about slavery? It's not an option for us. We can't be embarrassed. So what does the Bible have to say? When we think about the word slavery, we have to ask a question, what makes something right or wrong? When we think about anything in ethics in life, when we think about any difficult decision that we have before us, the standard by which we live our lives is never what makes sense to me or what makes sense to the most amount of people. Right and wrong doesn't come by by way of democratic process. So you don't get to say what does the most people in the world say is right or wrong, and that's what's right or wrong. We have to say, what what does God have to say about any particular matter? And then we say, okay, well, we're going to agree with that, and we're not going to be embarrassed about it. And we will not apologize for it. It's neither safe nor right for us to go against conscience. We are held captive to the Word of God, and we will stand with what God says. So how can we know something is right or wrong, morally acceptable or reprehensible? We have a standard. We have an absolute truth to appeal to. If you don't have an absolute truth to appeal to, then whatever your truth is, nobody gets to say it's right or wrong. If we don't have an absolute standard, what makes what Hitler did right or wrong? Because in his mind, he was totally justified. Who's to say? Well, murder's wrong. Why? Why is murder wrong? Who says murder's wrong? Just because you say is murder wrong? Because he thinks murder's right. So who's to say? Is it just because, you know, life would end if we all just murder each other? But wh- why is that right or wrong? Why would it be wrong to do that? We have to have a moral standard to appeal to if we're going to say anything is right or wrong. And your standard is either going to be what well, my gut says or what I think or what I feel or what they say or what they feel. 
what the latest woke mob is going to dictate to us, and we're going to say, okay, well, we got to agree with them so we don't get canceled. Or God has declared to us truth, and He's not left us in the dark. There was a period of darkness. After darkness, light. We have the Word of God. God is in charge, and what He says goes. Now, hear this. God never universally condemns slavery. Never. Not once. Does He universally condemn slavery. However, God does differentiate between right and wrong forms of slavery. Permissible and impermissible forms of slavery. And almost every form of slavery is evil. Now, the question is going to come up for us as we get into this passage here in a minute. But we live in a society that doesn't have legal slavery. So what in the world can we learn from this passage? What implications does this have for me? What implications does it have for us? So when we bump into passages like this, it's easy for us to look at them and say, well, that was then, this is now, there's really really no implications. How, How can we learn anything from talking about slaves and masters? But like we, like Martin Luther, like great brothers and sisters in Christ down through history, all the way down to the Bereans, we have to dig. We dig, and we look, and we pray, and we wrestle, and we realize My goodness, God's word never returns void. There is so much there for me today. You want something relevant? Don't try to make the scriptures relevant. Preach the scriptures and see how relevant they actually are. So we need to mind, we need to look, and the Holy Spirit helps us, and we see what's there. It's like our spiritual scales continue as we walk with the Lord and we continue to look at the scriptures. We keep seeing more and more and more because of what's there. Look at verse 9 in Titus chapter 2. We're preaching through the book of Titus chapter 2, specifically just this chapter, doing a small mini-series before we get into the book of Hosea. So we talk verses 9 and 10 this week, and we go from 11 to 15 next week, and we finish up chapter 2, and then we'll be in Hosea. Look in verse 9. We'll just read 9 and 10 together. Bondservants are to be submissive, which that word bondservants, that that is slaves. That's slaves. One of the things I disagree with the ESV Because the baggage around the word slaves, they put the word bondservants, and they shouldn't have. But the word bondservants is there. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. Slaves are are to obey their masters. Bondservants or slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. I had somebody ask me one time, thinking about Titus chapter 2, and he was arguing the point that Titus chapter 2 really doesn't say anything to older men or younger men, doesn't really say anything to older women or younger women because of verses 9 and 10. And he said, well, what do you think verse 9 and 10 means? And I said, I'm pretty sure it means that slaves are to be submissive to their masters. Pretty sure that's what it means. Because that's what it says. That's what it says. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. Now, guys, I get this. All right, I get this. We hear this. We're thinking this is going live on Facebook until old Zucky over there hears these algorithm words that are on there and shuts it down. And you know, you preach this, and I don't care if the room was full of black people or Asian people or Irish American immigrants or mostly white people. It doesn't really matter to me. The word says what it says, and we should never say like, okay, uh, 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 it's slaves, please don't let anybody hear that we're talking about this. Because we're not embarrassed about God's word. 
Christian slaves were members of local churches in the New Testament. And Christian slaves were not viewed as less than human. Here it is, right in the text, God speaking to slaves that were members of the same assembly in the island of Crete. They were on the island of Crete, and they were owned by Christian owners who owned slaves. And they were in the same church together. God gives them the dignity of speaking to them as human and giving them commands. Commands that they were expected as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, they were expected to obey. As commands come to children, children are expected to obey. As commands come to husbands or men, men and husbands are expected to obey. As commands come to wives and women, they're expected to obey as wives and women. And as commandments come to slaves, they are expected to obey. Now, There are certainly different kinds of slavery. Because slaves would have been present with their masters in the same fellowship, and that was a good thing and never condemned in the New Testament, we do have to ask the question, is there condemned forms of slavery? Because immediately we're thinking, all right, slave trade, we're thinking about colonial antebellum south slavery, we're thinking about stealing people, we're talking about color-based slavery those sorts of and forms of slavery, and we're thinking, well, surely those things were wrong and evil, but the question should always be, why? By what standard is something right or is something wrong? I want you to go ahead and flip with me. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 10. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Just for context's sake, I'm going to start in verse 8. Now that we know, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, slavers, enslavers, in this passage, if you look down, there should be a little number and it should tell you at the bottom, okay, what is this word actually meaning? And this word has to do with stealing people, being a people stealer. And this kind of enslavement, enslavement by way of capture, is outright condemned. It is put right in line with other things that are contrary to sound doctrine, homosexuality, lying, perjuring, sexual immorality, striking your father and mother, murderers, and that's in the category of enslavers. Enslaving, stealing people is condemned by the Bible. God condemns this. Those who steal other people for profit have no hope of heaven unless they repent of their sins. Now, in American history, this would include African tribes that stole other tribes for the profit of selling them to slave traders. In the history of the world, this is how a majority of slavery has worked, conquest and then slavery. In the Old Testament, we find that slavery was regulated and how it was to work in Israel. Again, it was nowhere condemned fully in the Old Testament. And every seven years... If there was a slave within Israel that was another Israelite, every seven years, Israelites who had slaves that were Israelites would have to be released in the year of Jubilee, every seven years. While non-Israelite slaves would remain in perpetual slavery unless released by their master. 
There was a way to have slaves that was, a not, was not by way of stealing people. Not all slavery is sinful. Now, this is what some of the people in the United States were working on, this modus operandi for them and for those in Israel, is that death or slavery, if you put two together, if it's going to be death by way of execution or slavery in a benevolent form of slavery where you take care of that slave, that slavery is going to be better than immediate execution. And this is how the Bible regulates this. If you were to have a slave in the Old Testament, you were to treat them fairly and benevolently. And if they were an Israelite slave, they were to be released every seven years. So this is how the Old Testament regulated slavery. And we have to say, because the Bible doesn't universally condemn it, that not all slavery is sinful. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. I want you to turn a couple pages to the right. We were just in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 through 2. And I want you to see this. It's really clear that there can be a believing master and a believing slave, and they are to view each other as brothers in Christ. A believing master and a believing slave are to view each other as brothers in Christ. This is a perfect example of what we see in the book of Philemon, where Philemon is to receive his slave Onesimus back, and he was to receive him back as a brother. 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, Christian masters. We see it right here. Let all who are under the yoke as bondservants or slaves regard their own masters as worthy of double honor, or excuse me, of worthy of all honor, honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. It's an important role that slaves had. Verse 2, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service, are believers and beloved. So it's absolutely clear that you can have a believing master and a believing servant, and that relationship in and of itself isn't inherently sinful. Talk about not popular, right? <laughs> nope. Thank you, kids, for listening in. At least you're not asleep. That's good. Okay, so what are we to do with passages like this? Should we cancel Philemon and Paul? You know, Holy Spirit, you really should have, you really botched this big time. What Paul should have said was, anybody that has ever had a slave needs to immediately stop. Jesus should have condemned it outright. The Old Testament, this is atrocious. We're going to cancel Paul. We're going to tear down his statues. We're going to burn the book of Philemon. We're going to toss all our Bibles in the Bible in outrage, or excuse me, in the fire in outrage. Or do we stand with Martin Luther and all other believers in Jesus Christ and say, we're going to stand on the Word of God. And what the Word of God says go, goes. This is our standard. This is our standard. We shouldn't flinch. We should receive God's Word with joy. Here's how anything... Any, any word of God should be received by us when we bump into the word in the Bible. Anything that we're like, wait, I just don't understand. Whatever God's word says, we sh here's, here's our response. Instead of, oh, I don't like that. Ugh, that's, that's, that's weird. It's, it's, ugh. It should be, cool. Whatever God says goes. Whatever, whatever he says goes. Now, 
This is actually a picture in how Christian, model, Christian masters should, should conduct themselves. Please hear me. And we're going to get to some things later on if you're like, please clear this up even more for me. But masters are to model, were to model, model how they treat their slaves and they're to model how to treat their slaves after how Jesus the master treats his slaves. And who are Jesus' slaves? Who is he master over? He is master over the church. He is master over the bride of Christ. He is master over the sons and daughters of the living God who are also slaves of their master, King Jesus. Jesus is our master. Jude, verse 1 through 4, is really interesting because Jude was the brother of Jesus, the half brother of Jesus. And in those first four verses in the book of Jude, he calls Jesus his master and he calls his very self a slave of his master, Jesus. He calls Jesus Lord, the God of the universe. He says that Jesus is the one who rescued people out of Egypt. His very brother is the one who rescued people out of Egypt, and he calls himself a slave of his master Jesus. Now, there's not too many young brothers running around this world saying that my master is my big brother and being joyful about it, willingly calling themselves that. But it's not just Jude. It's interesting in the Bible, Paul and Peter call themselves slaves of Christ, as does James. Jesus is a really good master. And he shows in that context, in that metaphor, that there's something for us to find in this slave-master relationship that's good for all believers to think about and to contemplate and be changed by. Immediately what we think about when thinking about slavery is what I referenced earlier. We think about the antebellum South. We think about slavery in America. It's the word that pops up in our minds. It's the image that pops up in our minds. We immediately think of slave ships. We think about American history. And we wonder, man, how did they miss it? How did they do this? How did they, how did they have such low morals? And how in the world did this happen right here in our country? It's interesting, it really is, that most, of, most all of American slavery really was sinful by the standards of the Bible. A few things that are interesting to note. In the South, about 4% of people were slave holders. Some things that we need to keep in mind when we think about American history... Not to justify it or whitewash it or to make it better than what it was. Color-based slavery would be sinful or ethnic-based slavery would be sinful because of sinful partiality. And this is one of the central errors in American history is that we subjugated people, not exclusively, but partially because of the color of their skin. And not just because of the color of their skin, but also their ethnic background. So Irish Americans, many of them have their roots in the slave trade, where Protestant Catholics were sent, or excuse me, Protestant Irish men and women were sent here to become slaves in America. Color or ethnic partiality is sinful because partiality, James tells us, is sinful. We don't look at anybody, wherever they're from, by the color of their skin or by the flag that they wave in the air. We don't look at anyone and think about ourselves that we are better than they. Or that we can subjugate them simply because we're from America. Or we're, we are white. Or we are fill in the blank. That's sinful partiality. 
And most of American slavery was like this and therefore condemned by the Bible. Now, American slavery is complicated. Slaves purchased in America were men, women, boys, and girls. And you think about it, and you think about the conversation over the last 10 years and the race relations in our country, and you just think, how in the world could anybody have been there? Like mentally, how did you get there to think the slave trade thing was a, even a morally acceptable thing? But if you get back to that day, and certainly there were slave owners that were awful, awful men. And women, by the way. In Virginia, the largest slave owner was a black woman. And there were people in the South that treated their slaves horrifically. You've seen the pictures. You've seen the slave ships. It's awful. Now, it's easy to look back in judgment. It's easy to be bitter about the past. Some, however... In that day, recognized that there was in fact tribal warfare that would often lead to death, and that many of the people that came in slave trade were rebels that either had the option before them to be burned at the stake, hung by the noose, or be sent off to a foreign land to be slaves. When you start to think about the brutal history, even with slavery, you realize that there's some there's some moral questions and there's some ambiguity there that's hard to answer for. It's hard to answer. It's hard to know what we would have done in those days. It's easy to look back. But for Christians, if the master and the slave were brothers in Christ, and black, okay, and they were unified in the same church, Titus 2. This isn't black or white today. This is in Titus 2. If the slave and master were united in Christ, then today, black and white America can find their answer for the divisions that are amongst us in any other color of skin or background. We can find our answer in Christ Jesus. Christ unites us. We unite around Christians and we don't divide over the sins of the past. I think we can look back in American history and recognize black and white and with the issue of slavery, more white than black if you exclude some of the African tribes who were in sin for stealing other tribes. But you look back and you realize, man, history is full of sin. And if we go and just look at, look at history and make judgment calls on history and then try to cancel everybody and try to make up for it, we miss the beauty of Jesus that unites us as brothers. And we find right here in Titus... That in the midst of slavery, there are Christian brothers and sisters that are together in the same church. And if they could be united right in the scriptures, can we not be united today? The answer is not feeling sorry for past sins or maybe our ancestors did that or did this. For black America, if they want to go, go and look back and find reparations or find something that will make them feel that there's somehow justice. They will not find justice apart from Jesus Christ. White guilt is ridiculous. It's silly. So is white pride. And any white person that thinks they're better than anybody else is living as a fool.
It's also easy as we look back in history to miss what's right in front of us because we look back in history and scratch our heads and we miss what is worse than slavery, which is right in front of us, and it's the legal murder of babies. And for all the talk about progress and for all the judgment about history across the world, if we just open our eyes, we see that there are a group of people in Texas lamenting the fact that there were so many babies saved from abortion because of the heartbeat bill. And they are sad and devastated to see the numbers rolling in of all the women who could not have abortions. That's how wicked we are today. Fauci has been doing experiments for years on orphan children in in New York State. He's been doing for years using abortion and fueling abortion for research when there's other ways to find out the exact same research. Big Pharma tied into the murder of children, and it's no big deal until he starts killing dogs. And if he kills dogs, then we're outraged. Because we live in a land that cares more about dogs than human beings. And we look back on history and we say, how could you? And we shed no tears for the sins of the day. Back to Titus 2. Slaves should submit to their masters in everything. They should work for their master and do so with honor. We get these words that fill in the gaps about how the slaves should conduct themselves. Bond servants are to be submissive to their masters and everything. They're to be good. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. Well-pleasing. They are to work with joy. They're to make sure the master is pleased with the work. They're to not to be argumentative. Don't question everything. You ever had somebody in your life that just questions everything? Uh, maybe like a child or something? And you're just... Okay, I'm going to try to explain, but the key here is just, just obey. Just do what I'm telling you to do. The slave should, in everything, submit. Honor the master. Don't argue about what he wants you to do. Not pilfering. The slave should not steal from his master. It's said in verse 10, or verse 10, not pilfering, but showing good faith. The slave was not to steal from his master. He was not to work for the master's harm. Think about Joseph and Daniel. Joseph and Daniel, both in the servitude of, an evil, of evil masters. And what does God do through them? He makes them succeed. He makes them succeed. It's an amazing thing what God does through people who are willing to submit. Daniel and Joseph are examples. They're to see that the household is better off because of the service rendered. How about showing good faith, trustworthy in all things? They're to be trustworthy in all things, showing good faith. Verse 10, showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. These slaves were to be trustworthy in everything. They, they were to be trusted. The master knows that this is, they're going to do what they say they're going to do. A good servant is someone who can be trusted with whatever is assigned to them. They're faithful in whatever responsibility is given to them. Here's a question that needs to be answered. When do they, when do they, when they're not supposed to submit? When is a slave not supposed to submit? Because there's no conditions given. Just like there's no conditions given for children or no conditions given to wives. But what we have to understand is that there is a time not to submit. Because the principle that's throughout all the scriptures is that when something is commanded that goes against God's Word, we are to always disobey. 
and to obey the Lord. Always, every time. If a master was to treat the slave inappropriately, wrongly, not benevolently, or ask a slave to sin, that situation, the slave should obey God over his earthly master. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21 through 24. Go ahead and turn there because I do want you to see these passages. They are important for us to recognize and lay eyes on. In the case that a master is not doing what God has called him to do, 1 Corinthians 7, 21-24 says this, Were you a bondservant or slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman in the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. This would condemn, by the way, voluntary servitude. You don't sell yourself. This is a violation of that command. You can go and maintain your liberty and go work for somebody. You can enjoy employment. If you can't build your own business or provide in that way for yourself and you need to go work for somebody, you can do that. But don't voluntarily sell yourself as property to somebody else. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Slaves, in this passage, are told, work towards your freedom. If it's there, if it's available, go for it. Get your freedom. You were bought with a price, so that spiritual freedom that Jesus has provided for you, work towards physical freedom as well. No one should sell themselves into voluntary ownership of another. So this passage helps us. When a master is not faithful, and if there's an opportunity with a believing master or with an unfaithful master, well then that slave should look for ways to be free. Work towards that freedom. But here's the day. Here's the deal. We continue to read it. We look at it. And we wonder, well, what about today? Because this doesn't say anything other than slaves and masters, and we're not slaves or masters here. They're to show all good faith so that in everything it says they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We're going to come back to that. What about today? What implications does this have for us today? Because nobody here owns slaves and nobody is a slave. And this is not a sermon advocating for that, by the way. This isn't go out and find slaves kind of sermon or go be a slave kind of sermon. But there are two big things that rise to the surface when we think about this passage And as we mine and dig, we find some really great things. Number one, it has implications on our work personally. Your work today. This passage challenges our work ethic. Every employee and employer is challenged by the Word of God. Secondly, it challenges us as our lives as Christians. Number one in our work, authority and submission. Now the master-slave relationship, praise God, in this country is over. But there are principles that apply to our everyday lives. Employers have lessons to learn from Jesus the Master. Employees have lessons to learn from commandments to slaves. We're going to start with employers. Employers, here's the deal. If you employ somebody, if you are a productive person, if you work hard with the responsibilities that God gives you when you are younger, what you're going to find is, like we said to the charge to, old, to, to young men, is if you're responsible in little, what ends up happening is the people around you begin to give more and more responsibility to you. 
And through your 20s, if you're faithful with little, what you'll find in your 30s and into your 40s as you bump into middle management or you have a career or a job or as a boss or as a business owner where you begin to hire people. And you look around in your, in your 30s and, and it felt like in your 20s there's just little gains, little gains, little gains, little gains. But when you get into your 30s and 40s, you wake up and you realize, my goodness, God has given me a kingdom. Look at this. I'm now in a position of power. God has given me more responsibility. And I want to use the giftings or the gifts that God has given me. I want to use that responsibility for His glory and honor. So the older we get, typically the more power we get. If you are in life in the exact same position as you were when you were a young man, when it comes to responsibility, then you've not lived a very fruitful life. You may have the exact same job, and you might have been that exact same job for 20, 25 years. But if you are still in the same financial position that you were 25 years ago, if you don't have any kingdom around you of spiritual sons and daughters or, or physical sons and daughters, marriage, if you don't have something that's bigger where you have more responsibilities when you're 20 than you did when you're 20s, you're just not living very well. You're still, still living like a college student with money. But the older you get, you get that power. We get a kingdom. And here's the deal. Good kings understand that they exist for the kingdom. Bad kings, bad bosses, bad employers, bad kings view the kingdom as existing for them. You're my pawn. Do what I tell you to do. You exist for me. Good leaders give themselves for the good of those that are around them. And likewise, those who work for them give themselves for the good of that leader. Bad kings only see the kingdom as existing for them. Crown me, give me my way or the highway. So employers have to keep in mind that there are employees to be loved. They're to be cared for. They're to be challenged. They're to be inspired. They're to be commanded. They're to be forgiven. They're to be people that get grace from you. Good masters and bosses lead like our master Jesus who took responsibility for those in His service. What does Jesus do for those in His charge? Well, He lives and dies for them. He gives Himself up for them. He does not mistreat His servants. We find freedom in servitude to the King. More on that here in a bit. What about employees? What can we learn in the commandments to slaves as we're digging, as we're mining? How can we in the Scriptures be challenged because many of you are employees? And we all answer to somebody. Even those who have authority, CEOs or bosses, have to also learn how to be employees as well. Because they have to answer to somebody. We've talked about this recently. A CEO answers to a board or shareholders or whoever else shares that power with him. And if he, he or she does not do a good job, they will find themselves without one. So we have to learn from the employees, slaves. How are we going to conduct ourselves like these godly slaves? How are we going to learn from them? We're going to learn, okay? Uh, employees, you have to learn to be subject. All of us have to learn the glory of submission. Every person has to learn the glory of submission. If you have a boss that's over you, and most of you do, how then should you conduct yourself? How about this? Submit. Be well-pleasing 
Don't be argumentative. Conduct yourself with honor. Don't be annoying. Don't fight. Don't steal. Profit from them by pilfering. Don't take a little bit off the top. But it's only 1% of one penny. Remember office space? It's just so small. Okay, don't take that tool. Don't take that piece. Don't take that whatever it may be. Don't take that whatever it is. When an employee is argumentative, he's working against or she is working against the good of that business. Don't be lazy. Don't take time at the water hole talking about whatever. Do your job and do it well. That's what we're to learn. Be the best worker you can possibly be. You know, this is a, a challenge for me in pastoral ministry. I was actually talking to Terry about this this week. There's a book years ago written by Eugene Peterson. He talked about working the angles. He said in pastoral ministry, you got your public life and you got your private life. And much of the pastor's life, because most pastors pastor small churches, it's spent alone. And he, what he says is you can polish up the public stuff, but you're rotting on the inside. And not doing what God has called you to do on the inside. Not being a good worker. Not being the man that you're supposed to be. This challenges me as it challenges you. Work and work hard for the good of those that you're working for. If you have goods and services that are purchased by others, make it the best good and the best service. Do your best. Do good work. God has called no man or woman to shoddy work. We work as unto the Lord and be trustworthy in it. God sees your work. And not only sees your work, He sees your attitude in your work. And the goal of the Christian employee, the goal of the Christian slave, was not simply, fine, I'll do it. It's not that. It's a joyful response, I will do it. What do you want me to do? I'm going to do it with joy, and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. I will get calloused hands not just for me, but I'll do that for you. You see, this has implications for every single one of us. Be a trustworthy worker. In verse 10, if the slaves are to refuse this, if the masters are to rebel against their master Jesus, if employees and employers will not use their authority or submission in the way God would have them, it has implications. We see this in verse 10. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. When the slave lives with honor and conducts himself in the way God would have him, they adorn the doctrine of God their Savior. Here is an employee that's a good man, that's a good woman. Here is an employee that brings profit to households, that brings profit in the workplace. When slaves and employees live like that, God is honored. Again, think about Joseph. Think about Daniel. Slaves whom God used and they succeeded in everything. Think about the fact that Joseph is said to have succeeded in all he did as he was in prison. Nobody else in the world would say, look at that successful man. In prison as a slave? And yet God says, there's success. There's my man. There's my son. There's the man in whom God is working. Joseph or Daniel. God was honored through the courage of those slaves. 
When we submit to God and we submit as God would have us, people are blessed around us and they see the hard work and they recognize a difference. We are kingdom people. We have the spirit of God within us. So we are to be good workers and bring blessing to all who are around us. Where we go, the kingdom of God goes. Now, secondly, not only does this have implications for employers and employees, it doesn't have just implications in our work or authority and submission, but it also has implication in our lives as Christians. And I want you to think about this. I was working through this and remembered some notes I had made a year ago or so. And I just had to basically copy and paste much of this and add to it and take it away. Because so much of the Christian life, we think about being children of the Most High God, sons and daughters of God, which we need to know well. That is the highest and most glorious identity of any Christian, son or daughter of the living God. And yet the Bible does give us other identities. We're not only, only sons and daughters of God. We have these other gifts that are given to us. And we think about you know, it's like every woman's conference is one on identity, like who, are you, who you are in Christ. It's like, is there anything else for ladies? There are ladies, by the way. It's always like, you're amazing, go, go, you go girl kind of stuff. Not with the ladies here, by the way, which is awesome. We have ladies here who love God's word. But so often, identity becomes about how amazing we are, and we miss the glory of what's actually said. Sons and daughters of God. That's not intended to make us think, I am awesome because I am a son of God. It's intended us to make, stand in awe that God would make his enemies his children. So I don't stand in awe of my identity. I stand in awe of the God who has saved me. God has made me his son. I didn't deserve that. I don't look at myself in the mirror and say, you're special. You're also a sheep. You're dumb. So am I. And there's something good for us thinking about our desperate need for a shepherd to guide us. We need direction. Because if we don't get direction, what do sheep do? We fall off a cliff. We just walk right off of it. You and I, left alone... We walk in ditches and off of cliffs and into all sorts of places we don't belong. We see a wolf and we're like, I'm going this way. Blood all over him. Like, all right, well, that sounds like I need to be friends with this guy. We're sheep. We need the Lord. We're clay. God is molding us. He's molding us, shaping you, changing you. There are things in your life that happen and you got no say whatsoever, whatsoever over it. And what is God doing in those seasons? You're like, he is shaping you as clay. He is the potter. You are the clay. What about the word slave and master? We are owned by another. We are owned by somebody. He's taken responsibility for us. He's purchased us. He's laid down the payment, and He has declared, they're in my possession now, I own them. And there is something beautiful there for us. Passages on slaves and masters, it's this physical thing that gives us a window into a spiritual thing. 
And if we only write off slavery and master and servanthood as something wicked, vile, and evil, we'll look to this context of slave and master with King Jesus and we'll think, wow, that's dark, that's gross, there's nothing beautiful there. But in fact, there is. There's something glorious. There is a slavery in this world that looks like freedom and a freedom that looks like slavery. Everybody in, in this world is a slave to something and someone. The question is, who are you a slave to? Are you a slave to your lusts? Are you a slave to your way, the way you've lived, the way you've done things? Are you a slave to the world? Are you a slave to the devil? Or are you a slave to Jesus? And that's it. Slaves everywhere. And there's only one path to real freedom. That's the irony of all this. There is freedom found in servitude to Christ. And I love, love, love my identity as a slave, and so should you. I am a willful slave of a Middle Eastern man. And I'm joyful about it. I put that on Facebook a couple years ago. Does this make me woke or unwoke? The fact that I'm a joyful slave of a Middle Eastern man. And it's like, wait, slavery's, you know, everybody's slavery's bad, but okay, you're a white dude saying you're joyfully enslaved to a Middle Eastern man. Okay, I think that's probably good. And you're going to get these mental knots. But listen, we're in slavery to King Jesus. And here's the truth about all, for all of us, every believer in this room, Jesus is a kind and generous master. He takes care of his property. He won't let us rust. When he sees us malnourished spiritually, he brings the help that we need. He takes care of what's his own. He makes sure we have all we need for his work. Whatever he calls us to, he empowers us to do it. Here, I'm going to help. Here, Holy Spirit, we're gifted with the Holy Spirit. We have what we need. He promises to give us food, shelter, and clothing. He takes care of us better than the lilies in the field, better than every bird that's in the, in the air that gets fed every single day. He takes care of our temporal needs and our eternal needs. Can we not all attest to that fact? He gives life to us, abundant life to us. And He gives us a mission and a purpose in a rudderless, missionless world where people don't know what I'm existing for, where I'm going, or what's next. Here Jesus says, here you go, this way. And he gives us direction. Here's your life mission. Live for my glory. Live for my purposes. Go out and change the world for me. We don't have to go and find our own life mission or purpose. Why do I exist? All of our kids are learning this. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. He protects us. He will not sell us to the highest bidder. He will not let us go. We're not for sale. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's all false teachers. They come to steal, kill, and to destroy. The enemy of our souls hates us and wants us dead. And we may be tempted, we may wander, our flesh may rise up, but Jesus will keep you in His hand. This world has no claim on you. We're citizens of the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of this world. Jesus is so great that He will even own your sinful flesh, and He will not push you away even though you have that sin still indwelling in your heart. He won't ever let you go. And we serve our King. Even when He asks us to think through things that will get us labeled as all sorts of stuff. People hear this sermon, my gosh. We labeled a 
all sorts of stuff. And you know what? People can say what they're going to say. Jesus won't let you go, and he will not let me go. We serve our king. We serve our master. And we serve him joyfully. Here's the deal. If you're a non-Christian in this room, I want you to hear me. And I want you to hear King Jesus. He commands all men everywhere to repent. You are a slave right now if you don't know him. You're a slave to yourself, your lusts, your sins, and your passions. You're a slave to the devil. And you may kick and scream and say, no, I'm not. That's evidence that you are. And today, by God's grace, you can bow before your master, Jesus, and say, I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. I'm in your service now. I'm not going to live for me anymore. I'm going to live for you, and I need your help. What you say goes. And friends, if you don't know the Lord, if you don't know Him, you're in trouble. Your friends that don't know Him are in trouble. Your kids, grandkids, neighbors, you're in trouble. And God does not owe anyone another day. The Bible says over and over again, today is the day of salvation. Do not push the Lord away. Let's pray.